We're studying the book of Ephesians, and uh, I think, I don't know how long we're going to be in Ephesians, Tim, but I think about six years, yeah. So it's an amazing journey, and it's a rich feast. I really uh, just feel such an honour to, to open God's Word and to look at passages like this. Such an honour. And I feel also the weight of, uh, I guess, the responsibility to be faithful to that Word and to make sure it's proclaimed well and clearly and to honour the Lord in it. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your Word that is alive and powerful. We thank you for the Gospel of grace and all that it means. We thank you that when your word is proclaimed, it will have the effect that your spirit has designed it for. And lives will be touched and hearts will be changed and will be empowered to walk more closely with you. So we thank you for the gospel of grace tonight. We thank you for Paul and the book of Ephesians. And we commit ourselves and our hearts now just to be open to what you, Holy Spirit, have to say to each one of us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So last week, just a quick recap for those of you who are away at wedding feasts and other things. We studied Ephesians and uh, chapter 2 and we looked at verses 1 through, we got through to 7 actually, which was a major, major load. And so Paul was very keen to teach. He says, before you believed, you were actually dead in your transgressions and sins. You were dead people. And like the people in Ephesus... Uh, we followed the ways of the world, and we looked a lot at that last week. We looked at the context of Artemis and the temple and emperor worship and occult rituals and magic and all that was going on with witchcraft in Ephesus and how this was such a pertinent word to Ephesus but also to us today. Before we came to Christ, we followed the ways of the world. We just did basically what we wanted to do. Paul says, you gratified uh, the desires of your sinful nature. So we were spiritually dead. There was no real counselling course that really could help. There was no self-help course that could help. We were spiritually dead. But there's two senses of this death. So we need to get our head around that a little bit. Firstly, we are spiritually dead because we're outside of Christ at one point. And as Paul explains in Romans, when you believed in Christ, you were buried with him. So there's almost like a double death. We were spiritually dead, but then we also died with Christ and we united with him in his death. He says, your old self was crucified with him and you went down into the tomb with him, in fact. But because of his great love, mercy and kindness, and we spent a lot of time looking at that last Sunday, his great love, mercy and kindness, he saved us and he made us alive with Christ. He raised us up with Christ. You came up out of the ground with him. And your baptism powerfully symbolises that reality. So when we go down to Manly and we're baptising people and we, they, they give their confession of faith in the early church, they used to do it in some very interesting ways and faced in a certain direction and all the rest of it. But when we place people under the water, it's a symbol of them being, uh, dying with Christ, being dead in Christ, with Christ coming up out of the water, united with Christ in his life and resurrection. That's what baptism means. That's why it's such an important initiation into allegiance to, with, to Christ and, and following him. So when he died, you died. 
When he rose, you rose, and the life you now have is the life of Christ living in you. Now, this is a fact. It's a done deal. It's true. Rock solid. It's not just a theological theory. It's not speculation. It's not a story. It's not a cute myth that Christians tell to make themselves uh, feel a little happier about life. This is the truth. And it's real when you believe in Christ. And we don't understand it. As I was saying to the church this morning, it's like a massive paradigm and mind shift that we have to make. When we believe, it's as though when Christ died, my old self died, my sin died. And when Christ rose, I rose, it really happened. It really happened. So what happened 2,000 years ago happens to me when I believe in Christ, when I choose to follow him. So Christianity is just not a fairy tale. It's not just a theory. It's true. It's based on the fact that Christ's identity, his very identity is now woven with your identity. His righteousness becomes your righteousness. Your sin becomes his. You become a new being in Christ, with Christ, in Christ. Paul has a lot to say, and Christo all the time, being in Christ and what that means. So you are righteous. You really are holy because of God's grace. And because of God's grace, I am in Christ. Because of God's grace, what happened to Christ happened to me. It's real. It actually happened His death is now your death. His life is now your life. His resurrection is now your resurrection. His righteousness is now your righteousness. His holiness is your holiness. And that's the fact. That's the fact. Well, these are the facts. So this is real. This is who we really are. So I'm talking about grace tonight. And there are some extremes when we talk about grace. There are some very strong extremes when we talk about grace. I grew up in a church culture where uh, there was a lot of legalism, uh, a lot of rules. There were a lot of sometimes unwritten rules that you had to kind of pick up. And there were things that were, you weren't supposed to do and things you were supposed to do. And the more rules you obeyed and uh, the more conformed you were, then the more accepted you were. And I can remember as a young boy feeling condemnation often feeling shame very often and feeling I just didn't shape up. And there was a lot of fear about the judgment of God. There, was a, a times, there were times in my life as a little boy where I was just, I was just scared in church. <laughs> I mean, really scared. And some churches can be intensely legalistic with a long list of prescriptive behaviours. And in that kind of setting, it's very hard to feel that God accepts you and he loves you. And what happens is religious people, they tend to hide their sins. In fact, the more religious the church is, Paul says, the more sin is actually stirred up in the church. In fact, it's just underground. It's just denied, suppressed, hidden. But one day comes out, of course, as we've seen in many churches recently. So it's a vicious cycle. And legalistic churches tend to cause people to try to become okay, to overcome sin, to become accepted by their efforts. Do more, try harder, be more like us. If you just jump through enough hoops, do the right behaviours, tick enough lists, hide your weaknesses, you're going to be okay and we'll accept you. If not, 
then you won't be accepted and God obviously doesn't love you. So legalistic teaching encourages us to really try to be righteous and acceptable by our efforts, by our labours, by our works, by our lists. You know, well, good luck with all that because it just doesn't work. Sin and sinful desires go a lot deeper than just gritting your teeth and trying to be holy. If you want to get rid of sin and conquer sin, which I'm sure all of us do in our lives, you need something far more powerful than your own discipline. You need something else working in your life that's going to help you overcome. We'll talk about that in a moment. So there are these two extremes in the church. On the one hand, there's a crippling legalism. And on the other hand, there's also a misguided freedom. And some churches say it doesn't matter what you do. Basically, you're accepted in Christ. You know, you can, there are no consequences. And, so, and that's a terrible extreme. And if you look at the, gra- uh, the graphic, in the middle it says, neither group depend on the Holy Spirit's power to become Christ-like. Either the libertarian group or the legalistic group neither need the Holy Spirit. You know? And neither come to Christ, actually, ultimately, as their one true source of power and change and transformation. And it's just really interesting, isn't it, that when you come into grace, you know, what I find in churches, as I do a lot of, I used to do a lot of traveling before COVID, but when I go into various churches, if it's a very legalistic church, there's usually no freedom of the Holy Spirit. There's no bucket. There's no, there's no context for the Holy Spirit to move because no one feels accepted. Nobody feels that they're really measuring up. Or if they do feel that, they become Pharisees and just look down on everyone else and don't look for the Holy Spirit anyway. That's what I've seen in my, my travels That's, and in my background. So either a crippling legalism or a misguided freedom. So with this in mind, this background in mind, uh, let's look at Ephesians 2, 8 to 10. So this is an amazing passage. I mean, some of you have memorised this as a child, I'm sure, and so you just know this so well. You can all recite it probably, probably back to front, and some of you in Greek, I'm sure. But it's by grace you've been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. It's not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. So we're looking at the subject of grace. Grace. Grace defined, first of all. So let's have a look at definitions of grace. I'm not going to go spend a lot of time on this. There's more important things to do. But, you know, in the history of the church post-Reformation, we basically define grace as the unmerited favour of God the unmerited favour of God. But I want to suggest to you that grace is better defined as the empowering presence of God through which we receive salvation, through which we receive God and all of his gifts, all of which are given freely. So everything comes to you through grace as gift, but it really is the empowering presence of God, the empowering presence of God. In fact, some people define it as grace is Jesus Christ himself as the gift so, with that in mind, let's have a look at grace in six dimensions. Uh, before you get too frightened by this, <laughs> this graphic, I mean, I'm gonna, it's, not, it's not gonna be death by PowerPoint, I hope and pray. Maybe it's life by PowerPoint. Oh, that'd be good. Life by PowerPoint. Uh, grace in six dimensions. I'm just gonna travel around this wheel fairly quickly tonight. Firstly, and I'm really uh, thankful for the work of uh, Professor John Barclay and his amazing book, uh, 
Paul and the, and the gift and the power of grace, which he's written several books on grace. And he summed up in, in some ways what I'd been teaching for about 25 years, 30 years, and he just published last year, and it's a, it's a great book, and he's gone way further than I was ever able to go. But he says this, first of all, grace is given as an expression of God's love and kindness. Grace is given as an expression of God's love and kindness. So it was because of God's great love for us. The very nature of God is love. The essence of God is love. I grew up thinking the essence of God was anger and judgment. That's how I felt. And uh, my dad used to have a picture of Jesus on the wall of his office. And it was a scary picture. But, um, you know, I want to honour my dad, you know, but I just... So he'd bring me into his office sometimes because I'd misbehave for a lecture, you know, and that was quite often. And I'd be sitting down in his office and then right opposite me on the wall was this picture of Jesus whose eyes followed you wherever you went. And it was like this. Like this I mean, a really harsh picture and I'd sit there and Jesus would be looking and I'd try to move and his eyes would follow me. And, and I, I kind of always felt God was really angry and, you know, not, not happy with me and he could just see what a, what a hopeless case I was, you know. But God is the God of pure Love in his very essence, in his essence. The kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared, says Titus in 3.4. Mercy was given. God so loved the world. So, you know, when we talk about grace, it comes out of the love of God. It comes out of that heart of, of acceptance, you know, and love. Secondly, grace is lavishly given. I'm so thankful for this. Paul talks in Romans 5. And he has a lot to say about grace, Romans 5, 6, 7. But he talks about the superabundance of God's grace. That's a great word. Superabundance of God's grace. When you come to Christ, you are drenched in grace. You're, and tonight it's almost like we're having a, a, a grace spa. You know, we're just going to get really, really into grace so much. We're going to walk out of here reinvigorated and renewed. Paul says in Ephesians 1, in him we have redemption through his blood, which he, and he says, talks about uh, the riches of his grace, which he has lavished on you, lavished on you. He's not just given you a little. He's not just given you a few crumbs. He has lavished his grace on you. It's good news. Some people get up and dance at this point in time. <laughs> now they just break out, you know, and that's okay. You know, the lavish grace of God in Christ, we died to sin we came to new life in him. We're completely forgiven. We are declared to be holy. We're adopted by God. We're given the Holy Spirit's we spirit. We experience his presence and his touch in our lives. And we have a future in Christ. He's prepared a place for us. We talked about it last week as well. And, he, and he, Paul just breaks out in 2 Corinthians 9 and he says, Oh, you know, that through his poverty you might become rich. Rich people. I mean, we're rich in his grace and all that he's given us. So it's, it's lavish, you know, it's the affluence of God. Thirdly, grace is a completely free gift. Paul speaks of it always as a free gift. You can't trade with God, you can't buy anything from God. The prosperity gospel tends to teach you that you can do that, but that's a false gospel. 
You can't buy anything from God. He's not a businessman. He will not sell you anything. He doesn't trade. What he gives, he gives freely. He just gives it freely. There's no trick to this. <laughs> you don't have to stand on your head in the corner to somehow make yourself worthy. He just gives it to you freely and absolutely. As the ancient hymn says, you know, nothing in my hands I bring, but simply to his cross I cling. Mm -hmm. I bring nothing to the table and I get the feast. Wow. (laughs) It's really good, you know. It's really good news. And then fourthly, grace is utterly undeserved. We've been hammering on this a little bit already, but no matter how hard you try, you can't earn it or deserve it. You can't perform well enough. You just can't do it. You'll just never make it. You'll burn yourself out and blow up trying. You can't make yourself that holy, you know. And many people think of God as a kind of Santa Claus figure. You know, we only talk to him when we want something. You know, so uh, and we hear the old uh, Christmas, that horrible, horrible Christmas song, you know, Santa Claus is coming to town. <laughs> you know, and he's got a list, apparently, of those who have been naughty and those who have been nice. And if you've been naughty, there's no gift for you. You don't, you don't make it. And a lot of people think God's like that. So Paul's message of the cross was the complete opposite. The Christ gift is given to the ungodly. Amen? I mean, that's why, how you got it, because you were ungodly. That's how you got it. It's because you were unworthy and didn't deserve it. That's how you received it. Regardless of your performance or your gender, your ethnicity or your status or your success. And by the way, if this sounds a little bit too free for you and it's offending you, it means that I'm preaching it well. If you don't get offended by the gospel of grace in its scandal, in just how free it actually is, then you've not actually heard the gospel of grace yet. Because it is a scandal. That we who are totally undeserving are given everything in Christ. So there's no list of who's naughty or nice. Think about what we see of Jesus in the gospels. Jesus associates with the excluded. Remember that, you know, the lost, the worthless. Mm. With uh, tax collectors, prostitutes, illiterate fishermen, children and women who had been marginalised by, their, by uh, their ethnicity or sometimes the illnesses that they had. His friendship with them represents the embrace of God. And Jesus tells the stories of great mercy and he crosses ethnic distinction. He talks about you know, the good Samaritan and how that's the heart of the Father. And he speaks of those who are hopelessly in debt, having their debt cancelled. He speaks of a divine love that just waits for a prodigal to come running home. <laughs> so good. So there are no performance lists for acceptance in Christ. You are loved, you come as you are, and you throw yourself on the mercy of God. And he will just lavish you with kindness and tenderness. And a lot of people come into church week by week and it's because of the voice of the enemy in their ear often, I think. They come in feeling condemned and ashamed, you know. And there are those voices that just put shame on you and put 
that condemnation. You come in and think, oh, gee, I'm just, I'm, I, I'm hopeless, you know. And you, we just need to get our heads set again in the truth of who we are in Christ and drive out all that other garbage. Fifthly, grace effectively saves and empowers us. For it's by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. So Paul could say, you know, uh, he records Jesus telling him, my grace is sufficient for you, Paul. My grace, it's enough. You know, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So it saves and it empowers. It brings you to new life and to new birth. And then it empowers you for a different life. So it's clear that when the Bible talks about grace, it's really talking also about a power that is somehow working in our lives and through us. And then sixthly, grace calls for a response. Grace is given freely. It's given to transform us and it's given to establish a permanent relationship with God. So when we receive grace, we respond. There's something in the gift of grace that calls forth a response from our hearts. And we begin to cooperate with the powerful presence of God working in us. So our lives are being transformed. New habits, new lifestyle, Christ-likeness begins to emerge in our lives. By his grace powerfully working in us. So time after time, Jesus outlines what this life looks like, you know, doesn't he? He just talks about, well, what's the new life look like? And you know, we see it in the Sermon on the Mount, we see it in the Beatitudes, but he says, that, you know, it looks like something like this, where it's where the forgiven are expected to forgive. It's where the hurt are to love their enemies, where the fig tree is expected to bear fruit, you know where disciples are called to serve, where the wealthy are expected to give, where followers are to deny themselves and take up a cross and follow, and the loved are commanded to love, where we give a cup of water to the thirsty, where we clothe the ones with no clothing, where we visit the prisoner, where we look after the orphan and the widow, the refugee. That's what it looks like. And it doesn't win you anything to do that. You're already in, but it is the outworking of Christ and his grace in you. <laughs> Amen? Amen. Right? It's good. I mean, this is so good. And I, I, I was saying this, I've got about 40 or 50 books on grace in my library, and at least, and I, I've been teaching grace for over 30 years. And the reason that I've been so interested in it is because I've got such a religious spirit that still, you know, wrestles with me sometimes. So if you're struggling with religion sometimes and performance and being accepted, you need to hear grace again and again and again. When I first taught this in my church at Randwick, I got hold of it. When I first got hold of it, it just just blew my mind. I taught it morning and evening for 12 months, just grace. And I reckoned after 12 months, we almost got the religious spirits out of the church. But it took 12 months. (laughs) They probably didn't get, even get it out of me by that stage. <laughs> so it takes time for us to soak in this truth and in this grace and in this joy that we have in Christ. And so um, I want to also say 
and I was talking to Vicky about this yesterday and she said, oh, Greg, be, be so careful when you do that last point that you don't put any heavy loads on anyone. And I said, no, I won't. I promise you I won't. So I just want to emphasise this next slide. Thank you. Because we are called to enter the Christ life. We are called to do all kinds of things in taking up our cross, in, being, in showing our allegiance to the King and his kingdom work. But we need to hear Jesus' words because it really contextualises it so well. Jesus said, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. But in the middle of that verse, and I don't know that I've got it up there, he says, yeah, I think I might have it up there. He says, I am gentle and humble in heart. I've spent some time thinking about the gentleness and humility of Jesus. Mm. Gentle means that Jesus was not a reactionary. He was not trigger happy. He was not easily exasperated or frustrated. He was understanding the most understanding being in the universe who just understands your struggles and your difficulties and your pressures and what you're going through in your life. He understands and he stands with you in that. He's so gentle and he's humble, better translated lowly. It means he's accessible and approachable. No hoops to jump through. You don't have to come crawling in to his presence. You just come in and he's humble and lowly and he accepts you. You can approach him. And when you do so, the Bible says you can find grace in your time of need. So our text then takes us forward to verse 10. We must finish because uh, we've got a work week to get into. We could stay here all night studying grace, actually. But we need to get into some good works. (laughs) So Paul goes on and he says, in the light of this amazing grace, he says, you are God's handiwork created in Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. It's an amazing truth, isn't it? But it's been used so often to condemn people who are not working hard enough rather than woo them and call them into the Christ life. He says, you are God's workmanship. Uh, Greek word poema. Some of you will be familiar with it. And if you think about poema, it sounds like poems. There's been a lot of sermons about the poem that we are. But it really means you are God's masterpiece or maybe we could say work of art. The critical thing is that when we receive God's lavish grace, we are blessed with a new lifestyle and with a new purpose. We are repurposed. Repurposed. Before we lived with a different purpose, now we are repurposed with a new life and a new vision and a new purpose in Christ. So we don't just live an empty, uh, unhappy life. We actually have a purpose that we are created for in Christ even before the world was created. He knew you. He knew what you would look like. He knew how you would live. And he had a purpose for your life. You're not an accident. (laughs) So I remember... Uh, the words of Jeremiah, uh, I think it was Victoria shared earlier, where, where God says to his people in Babylon who had just had given up hope, they were just kind of restless and grieving and sad and there was no hope. And he says, I know the plans I have for you, my people, plans to prosper you and not to harm you and plans to give you a hope and a future. So God has a plan for your life. And he doesn't want to just make you another busy worker ant in the kingdom. This is not about signing up more worker ants. 
just have a busy kingdom. This is about engaging people in the kingdom of Christ and in his, in his rule coming to the earth. You know that Jesus rules over the entire earth and his kingdom is here and it's coming more and more and more and we are caught up in that great program to play a role. And you say, well, what am I going to do? I don't know what to do. Well, start with just loving the person next to you. Start with loving your neighbour, you know. Start doing those good works that come out of the empowerment of the Holy Spirit who is so powerfully working in you and drawing you and pulling you forward into the kingdom of God. So that's all I really want to say.